Some people strut. Some people slide. Some people pound the ground. Some people sashay. Some people waddle. How do you walk? Walking is the one physical activity that people participate in more than all the others. Psychologists say that every person has their own PMP, their primary movement pattern. The way you walk reveals a great deal about you, apparently. A stride refers to self-confidence. A shuffle belongs to someone who's timid. A swagger indicates a big ego. Your walking style reveals your personality. Apparently, your gait is a gateway to your soul. And Paul would agree. For in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he describes how we ought to walk. But understand, Paul's concern isn't our primary movement pattern, whether we strut or whether we shuffle. He's talking about our lifestyle, our conduct. When Paul speaks of a walk, he means how we live our lives and how we order our days. Now recall, Paul had been in Thessalonica just three short weeks before he was bullied out of town. During his stay, he communicated vital truths. He writes this letter now to affirm what he's taught, and he stresses our lifestyle. In essence, he's going to be saying in these chapters, this is how we roll. This is how Christians should live their lives. Notice verse 1. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Now Paul is about to tell them what he's already told them. And realize it's not always new information that we need. Often we need to be encouraged to apply what we know. See, our problem isn't always a lack of knowledge. Our problem sometimes is execution of the knowledge we have. As we approach a new year and hope for a better life, we should remember this old adage. If you always do what you've always done, you'll always be what you've always been. In other words, change doesn't just happen. We get out of our lives what we put into them. If you want change in your life, you need to change how you're doing things, how you're walking. And this is why Paul is going to urge and exhort these believers to watch how they walk and live their lives. Verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Now, I've never met a Christian who didn't desperately desire to know the will of God for his or her life. Aren't we constantly trying to decipher God's will? I mean, what job should I take? What girl should I date? Where should I serve the Lord? Where should I move my family? We're asking these questions all the time. But understand, the will of God is not some great enigma. It's really quite straightforward. In fact, Paul sums it up here. The will of God is your sanctification. And sanctification means purity. 
You see, if we were floating down the Chattahoochee River and we got to the 285 bridge and you were thirsty and you wanted to take a drink of the water, boy, I would caution you against it. No way. That far downstream, the river's polluted. But if we were high up in the Appalachian Mountains where the river actually begins, the water there would probably be clean enough to drink. You see, the closer to the source, the purer the water. Well, God wants our lives clean enough for the world to drink from them and not get sick. He wants us free from lustful thoughts and from selfish desires and from disingenuous motives and deceitful communications and compromising activities. But the way to achieve this purity is living close to the source. That's what you need to realize. A sanctified life is a life that's been set apart to Jesus. And that's why making a tighter commitment to Jesus, setting ourselves apart from Him, when this becomes our top priority, then what job you take and what girl you date and where you give and where you live all grow clearer and clearer and clearer. As one author puts it, God is more concerned about who you are than what you do, and he is more concerned about what you do than where you do it. In other words, God's will is preoccupied with our attitudes and our character. Specifically, Paul says in verse 3, that God's will for your life is to abstain from sexual immorality. And then he elaborates on this in verse 5. Not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. The contemporary attitude today towards sex is that it's nothing more than a physical act. It's like brushing your teeth or eating a piece of pizza. People treat sex like a form of relaxation or a harmless pastime or maybe some exercise routine of little more consequence than riding a stationary bike. But boy, this attitude sure doesn't explain the damage it does to our psyche, the callousness it creates on our soul. I'll never forget a beer commercial that ran for a few years. It ran a few years ago. I don't think it ran long. Because it, was, it, it kind of backfired on them. It was trying to be funny, but it wasn't funny at all. In fact, it was very heartbreaking. The camera was outside this sleazy hotel, the site of a one-night hookup. And you could only hear the voices inside. But this is kind of how it went. The woman asks, So you have nothing to say? I mean, she obviously wants to believe that she means something to this fellow. He replies curtly, No. She begs for the slightest affirmation. She says, you have nothing to say to me? With kind of a smirky tone, he answers, sorry. She snaps back, fine. She doesn't want to be, but she's hurt. You know, the guy in the commercial, he, he doesn't value this woman. He doesn't care for her as a person. To him, she's just an object. She's just a toy that he's used to gratify his desires, like a paper towel. He's washed his hands of her, and he's throwing her away. And Paul calls this taking advantage of 
and defrauding another person. You know, any sex outside of a lifelong commitment called marriage devalues and diminishes a person's self-worth. Oh, contemporary wisdom might say that sex is nothing more than a physical act. But we know better, don't we? It's not true. Your own heart tells you there's more to it than that. For when the sex is over, you long to be loved for who you are. It's degrading just to be discarded. Your sexuality is the most immediate expression of who you are as a person. Allow yourself to be used without insisting on the highest commitment in return. And it affects your psyche in damaging and in demeaning ways. This is why we have a whole culture today with poor self-worth. You know, you might be able to justify immorality, an immoral lifestyle mentally, but you can't escape its emotional damage. Paul adds in verse 8, Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. So don't you just say, oh, that's just Sandy's opinion. Paul says, hey, don't reject this as if it comes from man, but it comes from God. Paul says to abstain from sexual immorality, for it is a direct commandment of the will of God. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Now You shouldn't lust after each other. You shouldn't use and defraud each other. Instead, you should love one another. You know, I don't think it's too strong of a statement to make. But if love is not the instinctive response of your heart, then you're not a Christian. Rabbits don't take hopping lessons, do they? Birds don't go to flight school. Fish don't need swimming lessons, even though they do travel in schools. My my point is, is that some things just come naturally. And for the Christian, love should be the natural response of our hearts. The Spirit of God births within us the love of God. A Christian doesn't have to be taught to love. It should come naturally. We should simply remain in God's love, and God's love will flow through us. And speaking of love, verse 10, And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. You know, the Thessalonians were already known for the love that they showed their neighboring churches But brotherly love is something that can increase. The love of Christ causes us to grow more and more in love. And Paul urges the Thessalonians in verse 11 that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. I mean, here's how we roll as Christians. Mind your own business. Work with your hands, pay your bills, handle yourself properly toward those who are unbelievers. This is how Christians should behave. You know, there are Christians in churches today who are always picking a fight. There's kind of a militant Christianity out there. And let me say, the Christian life is full of battles. Don't misunderstand me. The problem, though, is that we don't always identify the real enemy 
Often the real enemy is the lust in our own hearts. It's our own issues. What Christians like to do is set up little straw men that we can pummel and feel righteous about it in doing so. We boycott certain social evils and we picket secular causes instead of seeking our own purity, worrying about our own souls. When it comes to the outside world, Paul tells us to seek a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work hard, pay your bills. In other words, keep a low profile. Boy, wouldn't that be a change for some Christians? Pay your bills, work hard, just be kind. Rather than always fighting, we should be known for what we're for, not just what we're against. This is the Christianity the world today needs to see. Sadly, a quote, quiet Christian is an oxymoron in some circles. We need to realize that pushy Christians generally push people away rather than attract them. I think a better approach is graciousness. Well, in verse 13, Paul changes the subject from our walk in the world to our exit from the world. He says, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Now here Paul refers to deceased believers, not as dead, but as those who have fallen asleep. You remember, Jesus used this same idiom for death in reference to Lazarus. If you go back into John chapter 11, verse 11, he told his disciples, Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Now we know from the text that at this point, Lazarus had been dead for four days. I mean, the old boy's body had already started to decompose. We know it stunk. Realize when Jesus and Paul use the term sleep, they do so metaphorically. They're not performing an autopsy. In light of our body's future resurrection, death doesn't end the body's viability. It merely suspends our life. Our body sleeps. Our bodies will function again. Today they sleep. But that's just the body. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 8 talks about the spirit. And it says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. When our body dies, it goes to sleep, if you will. It waits for the resurrection. But our spirit goes directly to be with Jesus. This idea of soul sleep, it isn't biblical. The spirit of the Christian who dies immediately enters the wonderful conscious presence of Jesus. It's our bodies that snooze, not our spirits. And it's the Christian's hope that one day, our sleeping, our decaying bodies will wake up. They'll be resurrected. You know, the Greek idea of immortal bliss was for the spirit to finally rid itself of the body. But Christianity promises better. God has in mind for us more than just being a bodiless spirit. The Lord intends to redeem everything that sin has spoiled, and that includes these mortal bodies. One day, these mortal bodies will put on immortality, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Our corruptible bodies will put on incorruptibility. We'll have a spiritual body fit for the presence of God. Won't that be a blast? Well, Paul continues in verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is proof of our eternal life. 
Since Jesus rose again, we know that we'll be with him when he returns. And in verse 15, Paul describes the return of Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Here Paul speaks of an event yet future. We refer to it as the rapture. The Lord will descend from heaven. And here Paul gives us a play by play of how this event will unfold. First, he'll let out a holler. Woohoo! Something like that. And then an archangel will pipe in. Maybe he hollers too. I don't know. Next we'll hear a trumpet blast. And then a miracle will take place. The bodies of believers over all the ages. Some bodies nothing but ashes. Some bodies nothing but scattered ashes. Will suddenly come back together and reform and rise up. A metamorphosis will take place. Suddenly graves will empty and the effects of death will be reversed. Corpses will be resurrected and made new. People often ask, well, why did the dead in Christ rise first? And the answer, they got six feet further to go. But that's not all. Verse 17. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. This is where we get the, picture, get the term rapture. It's Latin word for caught up. The Greek word is harpazo, which means to snatch up. You remember as a kid when you played jacks and you hit the ball and you snatched as many of the jacks as you can? You know, you caught the ball. Well, hey, one day Jesus is going to play jacks. He's going to snatch up the jacks and the jeels and the bobs and the Beverly's. That's what he's going to do. Like a yo-yo. You're hesitating right now. You're hesitating close to the ground at the end of the string. But suddenly, at the rapture, the Lord is going to pop his wrist. And up we'll go. And we'll stop when we slap right into his palm. And he gets us in the palm of his hand. One moment we'll be spinning around on the ground. The next moment we'll land firmly in the palm of God. What a great feeling that'll be. On two occasions in Scripture, God got a little rapture practice in. This is something he's been working toward. He's been practicing. You remember Enoch? Genesis chapter 5 tells us Enoch walked with God and he was not. One day he just went on a walk. God enjoyed his fellowship so much he said, Enoch, you might as well just come on up with me rather than go home. For God took him, the Bible says. He vanished. God snatched him from the earth. You recall too when Philip baptized the Ethiopian. Acts 8 verse 39 tells us when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught up, caught him, snatched him, snatched Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more. But Philip was found at Azotus. Philip vanished and then he reappeared 35 miles away in Azotus. Enoch and Philip are examples of what will happen to an entire generation of Christians when God snatches them up. Don't you hope to be part of that generation? I sure do. And in the process of the transportation, also expect a transformation. 
For again, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that at the rapture, these corruptible bodies will put on incorruption and these mortal bodies will put on immortality. God will beam us up, so to speak. And in the process, he'll rearrange our molecular structures so that when we appear, we will appear as the Lord. We'll have the same kind of body, the same kind of resurrected body that Jesus possessed when he rose from the dead. We'll have a God-made body, fit for the presence of God in heaven. What a blast that'll be. Greek scholar Kenneth Wiest, he says that the word harpazo, from which we get this word rapture, it has five different meanings in the Greek language. It can mean, and here they are, to catch away speedily. Or to seize by force. Or to claim for one's own self. Or to move to another place. Or to rescue from danger. And with the rapture of the church, all five meanings definitely apply. Jesus snatches us up in the twinkling of an eye, faster than a blink. He strips us from the tight clutches of this world. He receives us as his bride. He relocates us to a new home. And finally, he rescues us from the wrath that is to come upon this world. The final judgments that God has ordained for the earth. The rapture is our great escape. And here's the most thrilling promise of all. Paul writes, And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Oh my. That's the icing on the cake, isn't it? We'll be with Jesus. Isn't this the fulfillment of all our hopes and dreams? To finally be with Jesus and to never leave his side. Paul adds, therefore, comfort one another with these words. And this is the encouragement that we need. Let's remind each other, let's remind ourselves that the Lord is coming back. This is the great encouragement that keeps us hanging on and holding on and hunkering down. Hey, the cavalry's coming, guys. Just hang on a little while longer. Before long, we'll be with Jesus. Comfort one another with those words. Well, chapter 5. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren... You have no need that I should write to you. Now, apparently, the Thessalonians were well informed as to the indicators of the Lord's return. I don't know that I've told you this, but recently the Lord gave me the exact time of His return. That's right. It's a fact that the Lord is coming back at 2 o'clock in the morning. I'm certain that somewhere in the world it will be 2 o'clock a.m. when Jesus raptures his church. I have no doubt. Actually, Jesus does tell us in Matthew 24 of that day and hour no one knows. No, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. No one knows the day or the hour. But here Paul says that the Thessalonians knew the times and the seasons. God has given us some signs or some indicators to let us know when we're getting close to Jesus' return to earth. He doesn't want us to be caught off guard. And one of the signs of the end times is given to us in verse 2. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. 
And when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. First, let me define this term, the day of the Lord. You see, currently we're living in the day of man. Mankind is having his run on the planet. God is letting man have his way and get his say. But the day is coming when God is going to shut us up. He's going to put man out of business. God will intervene in human affairs and have his say. Today we live in the day of man, but coming soon is the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord begins with the full-scale global evacuation of Christians, something that we know as the rapture. Then God punishes this rebel planet once and for all. We've been studying that in Revelation. God will send His creation into labor pains. The natural order will begin to cramp up. Incredible catastrophes will upset the ecosystem. The earth gets hit with contractions. Mother nature will eventually give birth to the glorious kingdom of God. But first, she will go through much travail. Jesus will reign and rule, but to get there, the old girl is going to have to go through a painful labor and delivery. And here's the clue that starts it all. When you hear peace and safety, then sudden destruction. You see, the day of the Lord is preceded by a false peace. A pseudo-shalom. There's a calm before the storm. You know, it always bothers me that Bible-believing Christians get excited whenever a new war breaks out in the Middle East. We, we see that as a signal of the end. The end is near. But it's not a war that we should be anticipating. It's a peace. A sinister shalom will precede the day of the Lord. When the nations believe that the danger has passed, that's when sudden destruction breaks out in earnest. He says, but you brethren are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. You know, the rapture will surprise the unrighteous. This world will be shocked and rocked by the sudden disappearance of millions of believers. I'm sure it will cause many people to remember our warnings. For the world, Jesus is coming as a thief in the night. But for the believers, we shouldn't be caught off guard. We should be watching. We should be on constant stakeout, aware of the signs, looking for Jesus. That should be our posture. Verse 6 tells us, Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Don't doze off spiritually. Be alert, man. Stay on the edge of your seat. Did you hear about the little boy? He got tongue-tied during his prayers. Rather than pray his normal prayer, if I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. He got confused and he ended up praying, if I should wake before I die. That's what some Christians ought to be praying. That they wake up before they die. That they stay alert. Once I had some chest pains and several years ago, and had some chest pains, it kind of scared me and and so I went to the doctor. It turned out to be a bad case of indigestion. I think I'd gone to Provino's the night before. But, but I'll never forget what the doc told me. 
And, and understand, this is a college-educated man. I mean, I think this fellow went to graduate school or something. Went to school for a long time. A lot of diplomas on his wall. But I'll never forget what this doctor says to me. He says, Sandy, it's really good that you came in here today because a lot of people ignore the signs and the next day they wake up dead. I said, what? Wake up dead? That's what he told me. Well, in a spiritual sense, every one of us needs... Every one of us will wake up dead one day. We'll wake up after we die, won't we? We'll be aware of things then. When you pass from time into eternity, suddenly you'll have 20-20 insight. You'll be alert to the things of God. You'll see everything clearly, but by then it'll be too late. The idea is to wake up before you die, not afterwards. Verse 7 for those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. I mean, rarely you see somebody drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning. Remember on the day of Pentecost, that's what Peter said when they accused him of being drunk. He said, what do you mean? It's 9 o'clock in the morning. If you checked on us at 10 at night, maybe, but not at 9 o'clock in the morning. I'm sure you've heard the expression, nothing good happens after midnight. <laughs> that's Paul's point here. Folks with evil intent, they don't like to operate in the light of God. They seek the cover of darkness. They stay away from the things of God. They hide from the light. That's why I worry about you when I don't see you at church for a few weeks. I, I figure you're doing stuff that you don't, you don't want any light shined on it. You, you, you've you kind of gotten comfortable in the darkness. You don't want to be exposed to the light. You're doing the wrong stuff. It's not always true, but oftentimes it is. This is why he tells us, but let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. See, we should be just the opposite. We should run to the light. We should live our lives in the light of God's word. We should be pure-hearted and sober-minded. Here we're told to strap on our protective gear, our armor. The breastplate guards our heart. The helmet shields our minds. And here are two areas where we need to seek some spiritual protection. We need to choose wisely the things that we desire with our hearts. And we need to think wisely of the thoughts we entertain with our minds. We need the breastplate of righteousness. And we need the helmet of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, literally whether we live or die, we should live together with Him. Now passages like verse 9 convince me that Jesus will return for His church, not after or during this great tribulation, but prior to the Lord's coming judgment. Notice the wording, For God did not appoint us to wrath. Paul made a similar statement, remember, back in chapter 1, verse 10, where he introduced Jesus as He who delivers us from the wrath to come. I was thinking, here it might be helpful to give you three basic reasons why I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture, why the rapture occurs before this period of judgment. The church will go up before God's judgment comes down. And here's three reasons why. First... A pre-tribulational rapture is compatible with God's promises to His church. Let me give you a few. In Revelation 3 verse 10, 
Do you remember Jesus promises the church of Philadelphia, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Notice, because they were faithful, they'll be kept from the hour of trial that tests the world. What is that? That's the great tribulation. In contrast, Jesus says to the church at Thyatira, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. Notice her punishment is the great tribulation, but that was never intended for the faithful churches. That, again, is what's implied. In addition, Revelation 13 verse 7 says that during the tribulation, the Antichrist will be granted power, and I quote, to make war with the saints and to overcome them. But you remember in Matthew 18, Jesus promised that the gates of hell would never prevail against his church or overcome his church. And thus the church can't be those that are talked about here in the great tribulation. The church has been promised an escape. The second reason I believe in a pre-trib rapture, is that it's compatible with the doctrine of imminency. You know, there's scores of Bible passages that encourage the church to be like a brand of batteries, ever ready. Why? Because no one knows the day or the hour. Jesus could return at any time. In other words, his return is imminent. And yet, if you believe that the rapture occurs at the end of the Great Tribulation, or even at its midpoint, you destroy the doctrine of imminency. Daniel 9 tells us that when the Great Tribulation starts, there's a treaty that's signed with Israel. It also tells us when it finishes, when Jesus returns. It also tells us what happens at the midpoint. It's when the Antichrist defiles the temple there in Jerusalem. Thus, the rapture, if it occurs at any of these points, at the middle or at the end, then we have signposts that predict its timing. And thus it nullifies the doctrine of imminency. Suddenly I'm no longer looking for Jesus Christ, I'm looking for the Antichrist. Something has to come first before Jesus comes. That's not true. The doctrine of imminency says that nothing else needs to happen before Jesus returns. He can come at any moment. His coming is imminent. That's what the Bible teaches, and that's why I believe in a pre-trib rapture. And the third reason I believe in this is that it's compatible with the biblical characteristics of Christ's return to the earth. You know, there are passages in the Scripture that promise Jesus will return during a time of peace. There are other verses that tell us that He will come in the midst of an enormous battle. Some prophecies tell us that He'll come suddenly, unexpectedly, as a thief in the night, we read. While Revelation 19 pictures him returning to the world mobilized against him. That the nations of the world are fighting against him and want to resist his return. Now here's where I'm going. You look at these various references to the return of Christ and you realize they could never fit one scenario. He comes unexpected, everybody's expecting him. You know, it comes at a time of peace, he comes at a time of war. How can this be fitted into one scenario? It can't be. That's why we believe that there are actually two second comings. Jesus comes back to establish his kingdom at the end of the great tribulation, but he comes to rapture his church before it begins, pre-trib, before the tribulation. These are reasons I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. Well, chapter 5 continues. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, 
just as you also are doing. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Here's one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. In essence, be nice to your pastor. Show the guy some love. I love preaching on this verse. This is great. This is great stuff. Recognize what he does for you and the load that he carries. Drop him a note of appreciation. He'll read it. He might even keep it and read it again and again and again and again. And then he says, and be at peace among yourselves. And here's how you can really bless your pastor. Get alone. Get along with your other fellow church members. Cooperate with each other. Serve one another. This is how you bless your pastor. And then in verse 14, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly or who are insubordinate, is what the word means. The Greek word was applied to a soldier who refused to follow rank. A soldier who insists on marching to his own drumbeat. And there are too many folks in the body of Christ today who march to their own drumbeat. Here's a person who has a hard time submitting to his leadership, to the pastor. And the problem is not the pastor. It's his own stubborn resistance to any and all authority. The law, the police, the government, his parents, the umpire, the employer, whoever it is. He just has a problem submitting to authority. They aren't content unless they get their own way. There are a lot of people in the church like that. And Paul says we need to warn those who are, who are insubordinate. If we keep this in the context of helping our pastor, when you see an unruly or an insubordinate person in the church, don't give them a listening ear. Don't give them some sympathetic shoulder to cry on. That's like throwing gasoline on their fire. No, exhort them to trust the pastor and the elders. Warn them about their attitude. Remind them that they don't have all the information that the pastor does. That's why they don't understand the decisions that he's making. Exhort them to trust those that are in leadership. Encourage them to go to the leaders with their questions. Insist that they either straighten up or move on. And we're not only supposed to warn the unruly, but also comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. I suppose you could say the church isn't a country club for saints, rather it's a hospital for sinners. Every person who walks through our doors has problems. We all have problems. This is why we need to love folks just as they are and right where they're at. We need to help them unpack their problems. And to do so, we need three things. We need patience, patience, and patience. And then Paul gives us some great advice in verse 15. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. A Christian should learn to fight evil with good. Now comes the machine gun commands. We're going to get some short bursts here. We're going to get some rapid fire. They're going to kind of come at us real quick. But, but there's some deep things said here. Verse 16, rejoice always. Keep your eyes on Jesus and take your joy from Him alone. You know what rejoice means? It means to take joy. 
What are you rejoicing in? From where are you taking your joy? We need to rejoice in Jesus. Take our joy from Him. It's a perpetual flow of joy. Pray without ceasing. Maintain an open-ended conversation with God. Just never say amen. Just keep praying. Keep the line open. When you get a free moment, pop up a prayer. Just continue an ongoing dialogue with God. Verse 18, in everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Notice Paul doesn't say for everything give thanks. That would be impossible. Lots of stuff happens that I'm not thankful for. I'm not thankful for the death of a loved one. Or for a serious automobile accident. Or for a fire. I'm not going to be thankful for income taxes. I can tell you that. Paul doesn't say be thankful for everything. For everything give thanks. He says in everything gives thanks. That's a difference. I can be thankful to God that He still loves me regardless of who else rejects me. I can be thankful that I have spiritual blessings that can't be stolen or taxed. I can be thankful that God will take all things, even the bad things that occur in my life, and work them together for good, for my good and for His glory. This is God's will for you. In everything, give thanks. And then Paul continues this rapid-fire instruction, verse 19. Do not quench the Spirit. You know, there are various sins that you can commit against the Holy Spirit. You can grieve the Spirit or do what He forbids. That grieves Him. Or you can quench the Spirit. That's to not do what He commands. You quench His work. When you fail to step out in faith, when you fail to cooperate with God's will, you quench the fire of the Spirit in your life, the things that God would want to do for you, but He now can't. And one way to quench the Holy Spirit is to prohibit or neglect His gifts. Paul says in verse 20, Do not despise prophecies. See, prophecy is a special gift of God. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit. God's usual method of corresponding with His people is through His Word. But there are times when the Spirit speaks spontaneously to a specific need. You see this throughout the Scriptures, throughout the book of Acts. He can speak to us through an ecstatic utterance or a prophecy. Now it seems to me that the Corinthians were your Pentecostals of the New Testament. And when you read through Corinthians... It seems they overemphasize and they misuse the spiritual gifts. Whereas the Thessalonians seem to be the Baptists of the New Testament. And their problem was just the opposite. They downplayed the supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit. Neither Corinth nor Thessalonica had acted biblically. For God wants these things to exist in our church. He wants us to be involved in these supernatural gifts. He just wants them to practice them in a scriptural and in a biblical manner. Thessalonica was only 150 miles from Corinth. Perhaps they had heard of the abuses that had gone on there in Corinth. And they went to the opposite extreme. And of course, both extremes still exist today. You know, it's hard to find a church with a real balanced approach to spiritual gifts. You walk into the church and they're either swinging from the chandeliers or they've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. But both approaches quench and grieve the Holy Spirit. We need the spiritual gifts. We just need to exercise them properly. And this is what he suggests to us in verse 21. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. 
Here's the balance that, or here's the attitude that produces a balanced approach to spiritual gifts. Don't discourage speaking in prophecy, but don't believe everything you hear either. Use discernment. Hey, just because someone prefaces what they say with the comment, Thus saith the Lord, doesn't mean it's really of the Lord. That's why you have to test it. The problem with prophecy is that it's subject to human error, for it comes through humans. In prophecy, the human beings become the channel. God speaks through the human mouthpiece, and when humans are involved, there can be errors. The answer is to check it out. Is the message in harmony with God's word? Is it in keeping with the nature of Jesus? Has it been confirmed by the counsel of other wise Christians? If so, take it to heart and act on it as the word of God. But if not, then reject it. Finally, in verse 22, Paul commands, Abstain from every form of evil. For evil comes in different shapes and sizes and varieties, doesn't it? He says, hey, just stay away from anything remotely resembling evil. That's a good approach. And then he closes with a benediction. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know how I love this verse. Paul is saying that we should dedicate ourselves to God because he has dedicated himself to us. Give him all you got, your whole body, spirit, and soul, for he has given you all he's got. He will, he will preserve you until the coming of Jesus Christ. And then verse 24, for he who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Did you hear about the guy who walked into the fancy restaurant? He, he wasn't wearing a necktie, and so the maitre d' refused to seat him. The man was livid. He stomped out to his car. He opened up the trunk. He grabbed the jumper cables out and draped them over his neck. He re-entered the restaurant, and he shouted to the maitre d'. He said, is this good enough for you? The guy looked at him, and he said, yeah. But don't you start anything. Oh, come on. That was pretty good. Understand, what God starts in you, He finishes. He does. He, what He's called you to do, He's faithful to fulfill it. He doesn't leave. God doesn't leave a lot of unfinished projects laying around. He doesn't leave any unfinished projects laying around. What he starts in you, he finishes. He sanctifies us. He makes us his own. And then he keeps us blameless. There are no limits to God's forgiveness. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. The Phillips paraphrase puts it, Give a handshake all around among the brotherhood. Some of you, I don't mind you giving me a holy kiss. Some of you, I'd rather just take the handshake. Paul's point is to greet one another warmly and sincerely. And then verse 27 closes the letter. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. 
The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen.